Amen. Well, if you'll turn with me to Micah chapter 5 this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, if you need to turn that on or flip it open, whatever works for you. Um, I was thinking as we were singing back there, uh, Psalm 107.1 says, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And this morning as uh, the praise team was practicing and there were different pieces moving here around the church and um, I, I was sitting in the back of the room just observing and watching and seeing hearing laughter, we can't see laughter right now, but hearing laughter, watching people interact, and just thinking of Psalm 107.1, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And, you know, we use this phrase all the time here that we're living in the middle of a miracle. And, and I, don't, I don't say this often, what, what living hope is, um, is more than a miracle for me. Um, this, this is God coming through on a promise. And sometimes I know I get caught in this maybe rhythm of church. You know, we come here every Sunday and do the same things, and, you know, we worship Jesus. Um, but, but God promised me this 12 years ago on a back road in Lancaster, Ohio. And so to, to sit back, and yesterday, man, by the grace of Jesus, the Finding Hope Center made its very first deliveries and so we had volunteers that were out doing that yesterday and making pickups. And, you know, we again, it's messy and people we're figuring it out as we go, which is awesome. Imperfect church full of imperfect people serving a perfect Jesus kind of a deal. Today, we've got two ladies in our church that are going to just take some Christmas goodies to some senior citizens that we met a couple years ago and just let them know Jesus loves them and we do too. Tomorrow, we've got five families that are going to deliver complete full Christmas dinners to families in our community that maybe wouldn't have had a Christmas meal if it wasn't for these folks giving up an hour and a half of their time to just go let them know that Jesus loves them, and we do too. And I could have never dreamed what God was going to do here. And so as I was driving this morning, just reflecting on all of this, many of you were here with us last year. Do you remember the, we had two Christmas trees back here and a black curtain, a couple of lights, I think we had some Christmas lights here on the podium and some chairs on a concrete floor. And that's what it was. And it was awesome. But what, what Jesus has simply done in the past 12 months is immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And I am so daggone pumped for what 2021... Imagine, in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, what Jesus has accomplished... In 2021, if it's another pandemic or it's worse, I don't care. Because what Jesus has accomplished is incredible, and I believe he's going to do it again. And so let me get off my soapbox real quick. All right, Micah chapter 5. Um, I also have to add that I, I love your ugly sweaters. It's so good to see so many of you wearing these today. I hate wearing sweaters, all right? So if you see me, like, fidgeting and all this kind of that's why I don't wear sweaters. I can't stand them. But for the sake of Christmas and Jesus' birthday, I was willing to wear one today, all right? Micah chapter 5, stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to be in several places of the Bible today, so um, make sure you tighten your seatbelt up because we're going all over the place. Micah chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 2 and read down through the first part of verse 5. God's Word says this, Bethlehem Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. Verse 4. 
He will stand and he will shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And here's verse 5, and he will be their peace. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks again for your word, for the privilege we have to be in your house with your people. Father, praise in Jesus. That's why we gather. And God, I pray now as we continue looking at promises that you've made in the Old Testament, how they're fulfilled in Christ Jesus, that, Lord, you would continue to awaken and invigorate our hearts to your goodness and the promise-keeping God that you are. Would you give us ears to hear a word from you this morning, God? Would you give us hearts, Lord, soft and receptive hearts to hear your word and to receive your word well? And God, would you give us opportunity as we live out the gospel the rest of this week, as you send us as, as missionaries into our world? We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I said just a moment ago in that prayer, we're looking at more promises found in the Old Testament that continue to point us toward Christmas Day that we know to be ultimately the birth of Jesus. And specifically this morning, I want to focus in on two prophecies. We just read one of these. We're going to look at another one in 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you want to begin to turn there now. But one prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 made about 900 years before the birth of of Jesus. And then now this prophecy also here in Micah chapter 5, written about 700 years or so before the birth of Christ. And both of these prophecies were transitioning figures this morning. We started with Adam and Eve, the serpent and Satan. Last week we looked at Abraham. Now we're transitioning to David. And if you're unfamiliar with David, I'll explain more about who he is in just a moment. So let's give a quick recap. If you haven't been able to be with us, maybe you haven't been able to catch up so far, here's where we've been so far. Week number one, two weeks ago, we looked at this idea of Christmas in a curse. And we looked at Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, where we saw Adam and Eve inviting sin into their lives, inviting sin into humanity through their disobedience. We saw that the first part of Genesis chapter 3, where Satan was able to convince Eve to question the word of God. Remember, every sin that you and I ever struggle with or commit starts with that basic premise of we begin to question the validity and the truth of God's word. Did God really say, does God really know better than I do? Does God understand what I experience? And we question his word and it always leads to disaster. But we also saw in Genesis chapter 3, as you read six verses past the fall, that although sin had entered the world, that God already had a solution and a savior named Jesus. And as God was pronouncing judgment over humanity, and he was pronouncing judgment over the serpent and Satan, in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, he gave us a glimpse of this Savior named Jesus. God specifically says that one will come whose heel will be bruised, but ultimately he will crush the head of Satan. That was Jesus. Last week we saw Christmas in the calling, where we looked at that story of Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 12. This really nobody who God had called out of a, of a polytheistic religious background. And God invited him into this story as God was starting a new nation for himself that we know as Israel. But in that promise of Genesis 12, we saw in Genesis 12 verses 3 and 4 that God made this promise that through Abraham's descendants that the whole of humanity would be blessed. Again, it was a picture of Jesus Well, this week we're looking at this idea of Christmas in the city, Christmas in a city, specifically twofold. 
We're looking at Christmas as it's found uh, a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 here in just a moment, but also a promise found through David in the city that was his hometown. And both of these are going to tie together here in just a few moments, and we're going to bring all this together. Hopefully this will be helpful for you today. But this recurring theme that we see, if you like to take notes, I would write this this down. This is important because this sums up all of what we're looking at today. It's that God specializes in using the insignificant. We're going to continue to see that throughout the passages we look at today, that God specializes in using the insignificant. Insignificant people, insignificant places, and insignificant circumstances for his glory. Maybe you're familiar with David. If not, let me give you a few things you might have heard about before. David was called by God to be the next king over Israel by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You might remember that story. Among all the sons of Jesse that he had, when Samuel showed up, he called in all of his sons, but he left one in the field. That was David. Why? Because he was the runt of the litter. He was the one his father overlooked. He just left him out in the fields to shepherd the sheep. I found it interesting that when Samuel had all these sons to bring in, he just leaves David. It's like he just ignores him until Samuel says, are there any more? He's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I do have one more son. Overlooked, ignored, left out to shepherd sheep. What is God doing? God's choosing the insignificant and writing a significant story through David. You fast forward one chapter. You might have heard of David's David's exploits against a giant named Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17 Goliath of Gath, was, uh, he was pronouncing curses over the people of God and curses against God himself. None of Israel would stand up against Goliath, this nine-foot-tall giant, but one. See, the Bible says that while Israel was on the hillside shaking in their boots, that David went up to King Saul and said, I'll fight. I'm willing to do it. Why? Because David trusted his God. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 17, using a sling, some smooth stones, and a sword, this runt of the litter named David ultimately slayed a, Goli- a Goliath, this giant. You turn to Acts chapter 13, verse 22. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. What was that about? It's because David was a man of repentance. David had messed up throughout his lifetime more times than you could possibly count, but David continued to repent and restore his relationship with God. And it's because of that posture, I believe, that God then makes this covenant promise with David, to David, and through David of a coming Messiah that we know as Jesus And friends, we could spend years, if we wanted to, looking at all of these different figures, circumstances, and scenarios in the Old Testament of how God made all of these covenant promises to different people. And we've really got time just for this 30,000-foot view. And so I really want to zoom in on David today. So look with me here at 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 12 and 13. Again, we're looking at a promise made to David, and then we're going to look at a promise made through David as well, and how these are fulfilled in Christmas. So the first part is a promise through a person. A promise through a person. Look at what 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13 says. It says, when your time comes, this is God speaking to David through Nathan. All right, just so you're, you're clear on that. God speaking to David through Nathan. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, that's a fancy way of God saying someday you will die. All right, so David, when you're dead, I don't know why you didn't just say it that way. David, when you're dead, I will raise up after you your descendant, one who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Now, we don't like to cherry-pick Bible verses here at Living Hope, so let me give you some background as to what's going on uh, these first 12 verses. If you read the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 7, you're going to see that David, now king over Israel, things had settled down in his life, and he decides that he was going to build a house for God. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7 says that David was now living in a cedar house, and he was really distressed over the fact that God wasn't. He said, I'm living in this cedar house, but God is simply living in what he called a tent, tent curtains or a tent of curtains. That's the Ark of the Covenant. That was the dwelling place of God among his people in the Old Testament. And the Ark of the Covenant was stored in the tabernacle. So that was a, a, basically a mobile church that Israel would use to worship God. And so they would carry this Ark around. They'd set up their mobile church, and that's how they worshiped the Lord. And David was super distressed about this. He says, how can I be living in this cedar house when God is simply living in a tent. So he goes to Nathan, who was one of his trusted advisors, and Nathan says, look, man, I think this is a good idea. I think you should move forward on this project. I think you should build a house for God, what we would know as the temple. I, I think this is great. Well, then just like one or two verses later, God comes to Nathan in a vision, and God says, eh, let's not do that. Let's press pause on all of this. He tells Nathan something different. And what's interesting is what God tells Nathan, Nathan then has to communicate to David. But within this communication, Nathan is talking about David's son, Solomon, who would ultimately build the temple. But these phrases that he says to David actually have a dual meaning. Now, in the Bible, you're going to find often in the Old Testament that when God says something, many times it has a dual meaning. It was said to a specific person, but it often was also prophetic, or it was looking back at a past event. Let me give you an example. Several weeks ago, we looked at the fall of Satan in Ezekiel uh, 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. You might remember that. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a king that's mentioned. It's the king of Tyre. And God is pronouncing a curse over this king. That was a real, literal king who existed on this earth, and he was evil. So God pronounced a curse and judgment over the king of Tyre. But it's also interesting, Ezekiel 28 was also the story of the fall of Satan at the exact same time. So it's very common when God communicates in the Old Testament that he'll communicate through dual meaning, through dual meaning statements. Well, 2 Samuel 7, this blessing that God is pronouncing through Nathan also has a dual meaning because it's talking about Solomon, the rightful heir to David's throne, but it's also talking about a messianic prophecy of Jesus, this prediction of a future outcome. What's the promise that God makes? Let me, let me look again at these verses. He says, hey, David, when you pass away, sometime after your lifetime, I'm going to raise up a descendant through you. That was Solomon. What would Solomon do? He's going to come from your body. He's going to establish his kingdom. And then what's he going to do? He's going to build a house for my name. What do we know that to be? That's the temple. Again, we're repeating ourselves this morning because I want to make sure that we, we understand the Bible so clearly today. Now, the question we have to ask, this promise that, that was made to David, this messianic prophecy, did God come through on his word? And here's why this is so important. Sometimes we read these Old Testament prophecies and we, we read these things that God promised and we're not sure how they fit together with the New Testament. That's what we've been trying to do these last few weeks is show you how God's promises in the Old Testament tie back to the New Testament. We want to see promises made and promises kept. Here's why. If God does not keep his word, then everything we do is invalid as a church. If we can find any spot, any place, or any situation where God did not keep a promise, then we might as well pack up shop, go home, and just have some ho-hos and watch a Christmas movie kind of a day. 
Because then none of this matters unless God keeps his promises. But if God keeps his promises, it means that we can not only trust him here, but we can trust him everywhere with everything. So we want to make sure that we see how in the Old Testament, if he made a promise, that God came through with it in the New Testament. Because then that leads us to trust him for other things as well. So I want to show you how God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 came true. Turn to Luke chapter 3 with me. Flip over there, scroll there on your phone, whatever you have to do. Luke chapter 3. How did God keep his promise to David? This, all right, this is going to be some genealogy stuff that some of y'all are going to hear this. You're like, this is the most boring thing ever. Chill out, all right? If you need to, put your headphones in and tune into Joe's message from four weeks ago, all right? We'll be done with this part in four minutes and you will survive, okay? But this is so important. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, all right? This is an important section of scripture. It's commonly believed to be the family lineage of Mary. Might have heard of her, mother of Jesus. If you hadn't, she's pretty important. Mary, again, this earthly mother of Jesus, here's her family genealogy, her family tree. This is her lineage. Now, you're going to notice something here. I'm going to explain this to you. You're going to notice here in Luke chapter 3, from verses 23 to 38, Mary's name is not mentioned one time. And you're going, Pastor Ann, are you a liar? How can this be her genealogy if she's not even mentioned? Let me explain. All right, so track with me here for a moment. If you like to take notes, this, is, this would be good stuff to write down. In the Gospels, there's two genealogies of Jesus. There's one in Matthew chapter 1. There's one here in Luke chapter 3. What you're going to see in just a moment, we're going to turn to Matthew 1 in a second if you want to begin leafing your way over there, that Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Joseph. Again, earthly father of Jesus. You might be familiar with some of this stuff. Joseph's genealogy, you read in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, starts with somebody we looked at last week, a guy named Abraham. From Abraham, Joseph's genealogy is then traced down to David. And then you see that genealogy then traced down to Jesus. Why did, why did, Luke, why did uh, Matthew do that? Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish audience. When Matthew wrote down his gospel, it was to show a Jewish audience that Jesus was the Savior that they were waiting on. So he used two important figures that we looked at in our Bibles the last two weekends. He would use Abraham, who was who? The father of the Jewish nation. And then he would use David, who was who? The most renowned king of the, Jew, of the Jewish history. He used those two people to show the Jews that Jesus, this Savior, had come through the two very men that you highly respected more than anyone. Luke, on the other hand, Luke wrote his gospel to a non-Jewish audience, to you and me. Luke wrote his gospel to people that were not Jewish to convince them that Jesus was the Savior. So who does Luke start with? You'll notice in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, starting verse 23, uh, all the way down through verse 38. If you start in verse 38 and work your way backward, Luke does not start with Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. Why? Because he wants to show we got a common ancestor as Gentiles. It was important to Luke. But here's something else that's important to note in Luke's genealogy. Luke does not mention one woman in his entire genealogy. I found that interesting. You know why he does that? Because Luke was writing to a specific Gentile audience, but he adopted Jewish practice when it came to Gentile, uh, Jewish practice when it came to genealogies. Jewish genealogies never mentioned women, ever. So in my genealogy, the genealogy of my wife, let's say that we were to record the genealogy of Elizabeth, it would go from her father, George, and rather than go George to Elizabeth, 
Her genealogy would actually say George, Aaron, and then whoever my daughters marry. Their names were not included. Women were not included in Jewish genealogy. So in a comparison, when we know that Matthew was very clearly Joseph's genealogy and Luke's genealogy does not align with Matthew's, scholars would most likely agree across the board, it's going to be hard to find any discrepancies, that Luke's genealogy was Mary. And when we see Joseph mentioned in verse 23, that was a reference to Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now you're like, I'm so confused. Good. Joe will explain it after church and you guys will have a little bit more clarity. Okay. I wanted to give you a little bit of background there because you're going to read this. I don't see Mary's name anywhere. Just to help us understand this a little bit more clearly. Okay, make sure we're all on the same page. So, so what's the point? Check this out here. Go with me to, to Luke 23, starting in verse 38. What do we see here? We see Jesus' lineage traced to Mary. Okay, we said that just a second ago. But it, was, it started at who? It started at Adam. And then Luke, what does he do? In verse 30, he includes who? David. Luke wants us to see that through Joseph's line, I'm sorry, through Mary's line, that Jesus came. That's important. That we're starting up here and we're tracing this all the way down. This is so important, right? Because we're starting at Abraham and we go down to David and we get to Mary. Then we go all the way back. We go Adam to David to Joseph. What's Luke doing here? What's Matthew doing here? He's showing us very clearly that God kept a promise God told them, David, you are going to have a descendant that will be the Messiah. And then here in the New Testament, what do we see? God came through on his promise. Guys, I know this is genealogy stuff and it's boring as sin, but this is cool. This is so important. Here's what's even more incredible about this. You see, God just doesn't keep a promise like kind of. God keeps it all the way. Watch this. This is neat. So because Jesus came from the line of Mary, and Mary was a descendant of David, God kept his promise by making Jesus come through the biological line of David. We're all tracking there? Jesus, again, David to Mary. Mary had a baby named Jesus. That means biologically, Jesus was from the family lineage of David. Joseph, on the other hand, if you didn't know this, Mary's husband was a guy named Joseph, but Mary, or Joseph was not involved in the process of conceiving Jesus. Why? Because the sin nature would have been passed to Christ. We couldn't have that. So God miraculously worked. It's called the uh, Immaculate Conception. Immaculately worked to do what? To make sure that Mary was pregnant as a virgin. She'd never been with a man before, and she gave birth to a guy named Jesus. So was Joseph the father of Jesus? Yes. How? Through adoption. Many of you have adopted a child before. You have friends that have adopted a child before. When you adopt a child, what does that mean for that child? That legally and rightfully they are heirs to everything that you own and to your family name, period, because they were adopted into your family. So not only was Jesus from the biological line of David, because he was adopted by Joseph, he was also from the legal priestly line of Joseph as well. Whoa. God didn't just keep a promise through in biological nature. No, no, no. God kept a promise legally as well. He kept him in the priestly line of Joseph's family as well. That is incredible. Now, we could get into some stuff in there because there's some priests and stuff that were cursed and because he didn't come from Joseph's seed, like all this crazy awesome stuff. We don't have time for that today. All I want you to see is this. Biologically, legally, God kept his promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's our second one, promise in a city. 
I didn't know we could get so excited about genealogies. <laughs> Joe, let's do a whole series on the genealogies in the Old Testament. Check this out. So we got a promise to a person. That was to David. But now he's making a promise through in this, this city, Bethlehem. Look at verses uh, 2 again. We're just going to look at this one verse. It says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you're small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Again, God's pre- keeping a promise again. What do we know about Bethlehem outside of the Christmas story? There's a few things I want us to to see about Bethlehem first off. First off, this was the birthplace of King David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, when the prophet Samuel arrived to anoint the next king of Israel, it was Jesse of Bethlehem. So this was the birthplace, this was the hometown of King David. If you were to roll up to Bethlehem back then and you saw a little sign on the, the street, it would say population 14 and a half, home place of David, kind of a deal. This was not a very significant town. This town didn't really matter much in the, the, the scope of all towns around here. But to the Jewish, the Jewish reader, this was important. Why? Because this was where David was born. Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. That's all it means. Think of John chapter 6. What did Jesus call himself? The bread of life. That's probably pretty important too. Ephrathah, that might be a phrase that you've never seen before. Maybe you read that in Micah 5 before, and you're thinking to yourself, I, I know what Bethlehem is, but what is Ephrathah? What does that even mean? Ephrathah was a term of identification because there were two Bethlehems in that region. Ephrathah was the older name of Bethlehem that it used to be known as. And so sometimes they would refer to it as Bethlehem Ephrathah so they knew what city they were talking about, the city of David. Ephrathah, it's interesting, means fruitfulness or abundance. It was a reference to the pasture lands that surrounded Bethlehem. Think about this, Luke chapter 2. Who were the very first people that that the angels made the announcement of Jesus to? Shepherds, where? In the pastures around Bethlehem. Again, that's what Bethlehem was. It was just this pasture land, this small village. Micah, here in, in verse 2, what does he call it? He says, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah, referring to the numerical size of this village. Bethlehem was not a significant place. But track with me here. If you go back to the first few chapters of Micah, You'll see that Micah, this, this prophetic book, this is a book of a minor prophet, Micah is pronouncing judgment and hope over Israel. Historically, and you can read this in this book, that Israel's northern kingdom, and so we're turning a page here, Israel's northern kingdom, Judah, was under siege, and God was basically releasing Judah to judgment. But after God allows judgment and pronounces judgment over Judah, he then gives them hope, starting here in chapter 5. God's like, I'm going to turn you over and let your enemies conquer you, and this is going to be terrible, but I'm going to give you hope as well. What was the hope? Your Redeemer's coming. The Messiah Israel has longed for is coming. And when he does come, look for him in Bethlehem. That's where he's going to come from. This small, insignificant village is going to be the home place and the birthplace of the most significant event in all of human history. This is where Christmas will take place. Yes, judgment is about to rain down on you, but also have hope because your redeemer is coming now watch this was god good on his promise if god makes a promise here and he doesn't come through on it on the new testament then we throw it all away so god said a messiah is coming through bethlehem was god good on his promise luke chapter 2 read this with me luke chapter 2 in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus that the whole empire should be registered here's our christmas story the first registration took place while Quirinius was governing syria so everyone went to be registered 
each to his own town. You probably saw this on the Charlie Brown special a couple weeks ago, if you watched it on your TV. Linus drops his blanket, he reads Luke chapter 2, you just get the tears in your eyes, we get fuzzy feelings, it's amazing. I love it. What's going on here? This is a fulfilled prophecy that Luke is pointing us to. You see, for tax purposes, it was very common for rulers in that day to do a census. They wanted to make sure, as they were conquering more land, more territory, and more people, that they had a complete count on everybody so they could collect all the money that they believed was rightfully theirs. So this guy right here, Caesar Augustus, does kind of an impromptu census. He's like, I got to make sure I got all my people so I can get all of my money. But in order to do a census, it's different than in our day. You don't just fill out a form and mail it back in or click send. You actually had to return back to the home place of your ancestors. And it was there that you would ultimately be counted. Now, Joseph, remember Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, Jesus not born yet here in Luke chapter 2. Joseph lives in Nazareth with Mary, who he's engaged to. But because the census was called, where do they have to go? Bethlehem. Why is that? Because we saw in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph is from the family tree of David, and the home place of David is Bethlehem. So Joseph has to return back to the place of his ancestors to be counted for the census to make sure he paid enough in taxes to Caesar. Now watch this, Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, again, that's where he was living, to Judea, where? To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, that's it. Why? Because he was of the house and the family line of David. We saw that in Matthew 1. To be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and who was pregnant. Now, a couple things I want us to note here. Again, because Jesus was from David's line through Mary. Again, biologically, Jesus was from David's line. God had already fulfilled this prophecy, right, that he made in 2 Samuel 7. But because Jesus was from the legal line of David... Now God is fulfilling the prophecy that he made in Micah chapter 5. Guys, God is a promise keeper all over the Old Testament if we, don't, if we actually take time to look and see what he's doing. But, but I love this even more. Notice God did not have the census called six months before. God did not have the census called one month earlier. Instead, God sovereignly moved a pagan ruler named Caesar Augustus and had him just so happen to call the census at the exact time that Mary was approximately eight to nine months pregnant and ready to burst, just to get this family all the way to Bethlehem to ensure when they arrived that she would give birth in the town in which Jesus needed to be born, because 700 years before, God says that's the town he's going to be born in. You see God doing this? God's like, I made all these promises. Watch me work, folks. You know? And he doesn't even only use Christians. God says, pagan king, do this. Christian, go here. Here we go. This is going to be amazing. And then it all happens. We step back and go, my gosh. Look what God did. Luke chapter 2, verse 6. <laughs> Poor Mary. Can we just say that? I've had a pregnant wife. Poor Mary. Imagine that conversation, Joseph. Hey, Mary, they called a census. We got to go. And she's like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> You want me to ride on a donkey for 100 miles to Bethlehem just so we can be counted by Caesar? Have him call me. I can imagine. Poor Joseph probably has a big mansion in heaven. Luke chapter 2, verse 6. So while they were there, they got in Bethlehem. The time came. I, I, I feel like we could just put this phrase in here. The time sovereignly came, orchestrated by God, so that he could fulfill a promise. 
that he made to his people hundreds of years before. The time came for her to give birth. The God of the universe sovereignly using a pagan king to get a young couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem just to ensure that God was completely fulfilling a prophecy that he made in 2 Samuel 7 that Jesus would biologically come from the line of David. God also ensuring that they get to Bethlehem to make sure that legally he was also fulfilling a promise that he had made in Micah chapter 5. God uses the insignificant means to accomplish significant things so that we know he's a promise keeper. That blows my mind. And I hope it does yours too. And here's how we're going to close all this down. You see, this message series is going to end on Christmas Eve. And what I want us to see is that God made a promise to Adam and then a promise to Abraham. And then he made a promise to David. And then we're going to see the promise fulfilled in Luke 2 with these words, God with us. The actual birth of Christ was the culmination and fulfillment of literally hundreds and hundreds of promises made by God to his people. Friends, the reminder for us today is this, as our praise team comes. We can trust him. In chaos, you can trust him. In the confusing situations that bombard us every week, we can trust him. If you wonder, can, can God actually use me to accomplish anything of significance for his kingdom? You can trust him. You can trust God because he always will keep his word. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're so good to us. You're so kind. God, I thank you for your word, Lord. And even in the details that we may overlook and glance over, that it's in those details that we continue to see your trustworthiness and your faithfulness to your people. God, may we never get tired and grow old and grow weary with studying the word of God. It is an absolute treasure to be uncovered. Father, I pray now as we sing that it's a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven and that you would lean over from your throne to hear our voices today. We're so grateful for Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.